I was going to be playing my guitar in Westminster Central Hall um, for the Methodist Association of Youth Clubs annual rally. And, uh, you know, it was very exciting. And there was me on on a crowded train on a Saturday morning with my guitar case. Uh, A new Christian, I'd only been a Christian for a couple of years, and uh, on my guitar case was very proudly put a sticker that said, Jesus is alive. And as I sat on the train, uh, the man opposite me in this crowded carriage started up a conversation with me. And he started asking me about the sticker and about who I was and where I was going. And that was all fine until he realised that I was a student of geology, reading geology at the University of Durham. And um, at that point, he started trying to convince me that really, uh, you know, everything that I was studying was a lot of nonsense and you couldn't be a Christian and a scientist. Uh, You may have met people like this as well. Uh, And... um, uh, it, it, it was a really important life-changing moment for me because uh, I'd thought about it, but I'd never been challenged in that way. And of course, um, we've all got to come to our own understanding of our of, of our life. For somebody who lives in a small, um, you know, village in Africa that's got no scientific background, it's not an issue. Uh, it wasn't particularly an issue in the days that Jesus was around because. Uh, science is a relatively new thing. But for, for who you are and for who I am, we need to have integrity in our faith. There's no point in living a life in which there is a, a disconnect between what our, what our mind understands and what, our, and what we understand in our faith and our spirit. We, we, we must have a position of integrity. And um, so I, I came to that position a long time ago, and, and I, I still hold that position, that actually there is no fundamental contradiction between believing uh, all the true discoveries of science and also holding on to faith in, in, in a God. They're, they're different things. Um, uh, science is concerned with how. Uh, the, the, our faith is more concerned with why and, 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 and who. Those are the questions that really science, uh, our faith is answering. But this man was presenting me uh, a choice he was more or less saying, you've either got to choose between this or that. Uh, I'm very grateful. Perhaps you could put up a... Perhaps you could put up a, a <coughs> uh, I, I would like to say that, that the whole of this six-week thing is not going to be all about this. This is just where, just where we're starting, but we need to sort of cu- cover this. Uh, and a few years ago, um, uh, the best book that I've um, seen was published, and it, uh, it asked that kind of question... It says, creation or evolution, do we have to choose? It's a question. Do we have to choose? And um, it, it's, by, uh, it's by Dennis Alexander, who is the, uh, the president of the Faraday Institute, which is uh, a, a very important inform- uh, science and faith institute. Um, he's, um, but anyway, th- this book, uh, which actually, I don't want to name drop, but I reviewed on the Christians in Science web- website, so you can... You can, you can read that if you like. Let me just tell you a couple of things that are written on the front. The front page, it says this. Surely the best informed, clearest and most judicious treatment of the question in its title that you can find anywhere today. Now that comes from Professor Jim Packer, who is a conservative evangelical uh, professor from um, American Seminary. On the back... In this brilliant and highly readable treatise, Dennis Alexander, the scientist believer, argues convincingly and lovingly that a committed Christian need not fear evolution 
add in their science, but can embrace it as God's awesome means of creation. Dr. Francis Collins, the head of the Human Genome Project, you know, one of the absolute top scientists in the world. So, um, as we let's just have a look at the cover of this book in case you haven't seen it. Oh, I've got I've got the clicker. Let's see if it works. Oh, which way do that way? Oh, that's it. I've done it. Right. Okay. Fantastic. Um, that's the cover. A rather cheeky photograph there. Um, it's not working. Oh. Can you step me up? Oh, thank you, Steve. Right. Let me just say what Dennis Alexander says. I've written this book mainly for people who believe, as I do, that the Bible is the inspired word of God from cover to cover. And I would like to say that I also hold that position. And that's the position at which uh, I'm going to be talking. Now, do we have to choose? Do you have to reject Christian faith? Um, Or do you have to reject science in order to hold the two together? Now, there are many people who argue that you do, and this is a very controversial subject. And I know that at the beginning of a new year, it's a rather risky subject. And and I have have, uh, preached on this subject before, and in some churches have received letters which tell me that I should leave ministry, read the whole Bible through again, and recant my heretical views. Uh, I've also uh, had much more positive responses um, But uh, I just remember a conversation having with my friend Eric, who's uh, a pastor in in Czech Republic. He has different views to me. He says, um, Laurie, he says, we disagree, but you are still my friend. And uh, I've had some conversations with people in this church about this. We disagree. That's okay. But we're still friends, okay? That's the basis, okay? So, let us... um, let us, let us move on. Um, we can move on to the next one, Steve. I'm going to have to... Reading the whole book, the, the, the doctrine of creation is not about just the first chapter of Genesis. Genesis 1, Exodus 20, for in six days the Lord made the earth, but he rested on the seventh day. Deuteronomy 11, it's a land that the Lord your God cares for. Job 38, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? That's a good question, isn't it? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Uh, or that's or the uh, Cockney version. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Yeah. Um, Proverbs 8. The, the Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Ecclesiastes. Remember your creator in the day of your youth. Isaiah. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. John 1. Through him... Now we're talking about Jesus. Through him, all things were made. Acts 17, Paul, uh, the God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. Romans 1.20, and this is a very key verse. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. We can see the, the, the God's designer's fingerprint in all that he has made. All things were created by him and for him, Jesus. God's Son is heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. He sustains all things by his powerful world. That's important, that if God created it, he is also sustaining it. If God stopped breathing onto this world, it would collapse. It would be the end of all that we know. Long ago, by God's word, this is Peter, The heavens existed and the earth was formed. 
And then finally, and we come on to this next week, we're going to do the beginning this week and the end next week. Okay, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So the Bible is heading towards a new creation, um, when, which we'll have a look at um, another time. So the Bible is a book about, which is about uh, theology. It's about God. It's about God's relationship with his creation, and especially with us, the pinnacle of his creation, the people that he made in his image. Its fundamental statement is God is the creator. The Bible begins with the word, in the beginning God created. It doesn't begin with an explanation. It doesn't begin with uh, any kind of apologetic. It simply says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the doctrine of creation is formed from the whole book. So let's have a look now at the way God has spoken. Psalm 19 we started with today. And if you remember, um, I started reading from the first part of the psalm, the heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, if you want to know about God, we know about God through his creation. We just look up in the stars and we go, wow, you know, especially living in a village like Fivehead with no streetlights, we have a constant reminder of the glory of God in all that he's made. In other words, the first way that God speaks is through his book of works, what he has made. And, and I want to remind you that the, the creation has been around a lot longer than the Bible. The Bible has only been around about four, three, 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 four thousand years. Uh, creation has been around a lot longer. Um, so before anything was written down, God has spoken through his creation. But then in the second part of Psalm 19, it talks about the law of the Lord is perfect. He's now talking about God's written word. He speaks through the written word and the spoken word. Uh, and the second half of the psalm is all about God's book of words. The Bible. So he speaks to us through what he's made. He speaks to us through his word, through the Bible. But Hebrews tells us that in the last days, God has spoken to us through his son, through whom he made all things. And so there are three different ways that God speaks to us, and all of those, I would say, tie together. They all give the same message, that God is the creator of this world, that he loves all that he's made. So let's now uh, think about that psalm, Hebrew poetry. Um, here, here's a little poem. <clears throat> uh, you, you, you all know different forms of English poetry. So for lo lovers of English literature... There was a young man at the station who was challenged to think on creation by a man on the train who thought geologists profane but helped seal that young man's vocation. Now, you know that poetic form, don't you? It's a limerick. Okay, and we have, I don't know, you could, I couldn't tell you what a sonnet was or anything like that, but, but there are different poetic forms. But when we read the, the scriptures, we are talking about the Hebrew language and... Um, the Hebrew language has a different poetic form, and it's called parallelism. So here we go. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Okay? So there's, it repeats itself, doesn't it, uh, to say the same thing. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Can you see that pattern coming out? Um, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. It's a form of poetry that repeats itself to double, to emphasize the meaning. And throughout the Bible of the Old Testament, you can find this form of poetry, um, which is very important in understanding the Bible. And now we did this in an, in an old age service a little while ago, so forgive me if I'm repeating, but I think it's so important how we interpret the scripture. When we look at Genesis chapter 1, what form of literature is it? It's pretty obvious to me that it's a poem. It's got six verses and then a seventh verse tacked on. It's a poem, uh, which all have a structure, uh, and therefore if we read it as a poem, and if we understand the Hebrew type of poetry, it makes a lot of sense. Just look at this. On day one, verse one, and God said. On day two, and God said. On day three, and God said. Then God said. So on day three, he says two things. Okay, let's have a look at verse, the next one. Day four, and God said. Day five, and God said. Day six, and God said, and? Then God said. So can you see, there's a, there's a real structure there of the, of the way that Genesis 1 is constructed. There are six verses. They each start, they each have the same phrase, and God said, but on day three and day six, there's a double statement. So it follows a kind of a pattern that parallels itself. So if we read the psalm, read the, the chapter, oh, and then lastly, and God rested uh, and blessed on day seven. Let's just go through it then. Three days of separating. Day one, light from darkness. Day two, separates the sky from the sea. That's uh, the sky and the sea at, uh, down in, in Devon, East Devon, near Budley Salterton. Uh, day three, he separates the land from the sea. So out of the chaos that was there at the beginning, that the earth was without form and, and void, by day three, he has caused some kind of order. He has created light and dark, he has created air, air and, and water, sky separated, then he separated the land from the sea and it's at this point that he says it's good check it out okay and then on day three now we've got land he puts plants on the land can't have plants on the land without land can you so that's that's all pretty logical let's now see what happens on day four on day four sorry if you can't read that terribly well lights in the sky now people often ask the question well how come he created light on day one, but he didn't create the sun until great four. That doesn't make sense, does it? But if you read it as a poem, it does, because it says he created light at the beginning and separated it from darkness. But then on day four, it says he creates the lights. He doesn't even give them the name sun and moon. He just calls them the greater light and the lesser light um, because he doesn't want to fall in the same pattern as the other stories that were saying that the sun and moon were gods. They're not gods. God created them. And so he just calls them the lesser light and the, and the greater light. I put them in their place. And then he chucks this word in, and he also created the stars. Yeah. Just a few billion, 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 billion of them, you know, just like that. And he knows them all by name. That's, uh, day five, he creates the fish and the birds. Well, what did he do on day two? He separated the sky and the sea. 
And so on day five, you see uh, that the sky is filled with the birds and the fish, uh, the, the fish and other creatures are in the sea. And then day six, he creates the land creatures. The land was there on day three, so the land is ready for the creatures and on land. And then finally, the last thing on day six, he creates human beings, you and me. Now, that is... Uh, that pattern, read as a poem, does not actually differ from anything which science teaches. You can study geology or what have you. That pattern is, is, is pretty well the same. When you consider this was written 3,000 years ago or thereabouts, that's pretty incredible. Um, so for me, as a scientist, I can look at that and I can think of the things that I've studied and don't see any contradiction um, whatsoever. Okay, um, Let's have a look a little bit more detail. Oh, the Sabbath rest. I keep forgetting that. The seventh day is very important. The Sabbath rest is when God sits back and looks at all that he's made and, and rests and is kind of pleased with what he's made. It's not that he's tired, because God doesn't get tired. But he, he, he sits back and, and he, he just enjoys all that he's made. Okay. So let's have a look at this in a little bit more detail. Um, there are a number of words that are used in this passage, uh, but there's one of them that's only used three times, and it is a word called bara. It means to create, and uh, the thing about this word, um, I, I, if you want to know more detail about this, you better talk to my friend Mike, because Mike's a much better scholar of Hebrew than I am. So if I get this wrong, Mike, please do let me know. This word is only ever used with God as the subject. So when something is created, bara, it is only created by God. I mean, I can create something, but I, I wouldn't be able to use that word. It's only for when God creates something. There are some other words, asa and dasha, which mean to make or to bring forth, but only one word that says to create. Our English translations don't always make that clear. Um, let's see where it's used. In verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty spectacular, out of nothing, you know, to create the, 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 uh, the heavens and the earth. It's used again in verse 21, where God creates the living creatures that populate the sea and the land. Um, and it's used again in verse 27, when he creates human beings. So there are three things there which God has created, uh, which, are, which are kind of special points in creation, aren't they? So let's just have a look what they are. There were three scientific mysteries. You know, if you're a scientist or a theologian, you must always allow for mystery. Uh, those of you that were here for our carol service, we might have spoke a bit about mysteries. And that, uh, that sketch from Monty Python where, you know, um, I wouldn't like that. It would take the mystery out of life if we knew everything. And there were certain things that scientists and theologians still say, we, we struggle with this. The first one is the origin of the universe. Now, uh, I've used the word Big Bang there. Some people don't like the word Big Bang um, because they think that it, it... Because it's associated with um, scientists, some of whom are atheists. But actually, when you think about it, um, the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What it's saying is, at one point, there was nothing there. And the next nanosecond, there was. So it's like this. I did this in a youth club once. Uh, and I sat down, I was talking to children, I said, 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then as I sat down, the chair went crack. And um, it was very good. You know, if God created the heavens and the earth, it didn't happen without a pop. You know, so, okay, um, it's another way. It's it's a way of describing the beginning. So for a Christian scientist, uh, we we will say, um, you know, the the Big Bang, the beginning of the universe, if, if you're talking in Bible language, in the beginning. It's exactly the same thing. Now, here is the mystery. Uh, We do know a lot about what's happened in our universe since it's expanded, and it's expanding still. And, you know, we've sent rockets and telescopes up to see it. But you talk to any scientist, they'll tell you, we know what happened back to a few nanoseconds after it started, after the beginning, after the Big Bang, whatever you like, but we don't know what happened before. And that's why they built that enormous accelerator in CERN in Switzerland to try to find out, get further and further back. But we still don't know. There are still mysteries. Uh, Okay, we've discovered the Higgs boson. You all go, yippee! That was a professor in Bristol who discovered that, uh, predicted it many years ago. There's still things we don't know. The beginning is still a mystery. Second thing. The origin of life. You know, we know a lot about how life has developed and grown and, and, uh, and adapted on the earth. But one thing we don't know is how life began. How did those chemicals which make us up, out of the dust of the universe, how did they become a living cell? Nobody knows. No scientists have been able to replicate that experiment. They've tried, goodness me. Uh, We know how to adapt life, we know how to modify life, but we don't know how it began. If if you take, uh, you know, there's only about 92 elements in the universe, and out of them, everything is made. Scientists can make all sorts of incredible things, drugs and and what have you, but nobody's managed to make life. Because it's associated with that word, God created life. It's still a mystery. How did life begin? And we need to hold that as a mystery. And there's one more. The origin of human beings. Um, It's clear that human beings are, in many ways, like other creatures in the universe. Uh, You know, we we share an awful lot. Um, If you you don't believe me, every cell in your body has got DNA in it. And if you were to analyse it, you are 98% the same as a chimpanzee. You are 50% the same as a rat... Uh, I beg your pardon, 80% the same as a rat and 50% as a banana. (laughs) So every cell in our body has some similarity to other creatures. But, you know, what difference 2% makes? Uh, uh, Even if you analyse it, we still can't work out what is different between a human being and other creatures by scientific means. At one point, God created someone in his own image. Now, we're not going to talk about that today. Uh, How that happened is a mystery. We don't know. But we do know that at some point, creatures in the image of God were walking around on the earth, and before that, they weren't. And we do know that we're here today. And we do know that we're made by God, and we do know that we're made in his image. And we find our identity through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are a lot of things that we don't know. Are we okay with not knowing?
Because, you know, if, if you ever think that I'm saying that I know it all, I don't. So let's conclude. What is the doctrine of creation? Well, first of all, I want to say, you don't have to believe in scientific theories to be a Christian. It's not to do with salvation. It's not the core thing. But it is important, especially if you're working in science. I mean, I've got a number of friends that I've worked with um, who have, are in really top positions in science. Uh, I won't do to be name-dropping. But I, will, I just won't mention one. And that is um, Professor Sir Gillian Prance, who lives in Lyme Regis, used to be the director of Kew Gardens. He's one of the world's leading experts in the trees of the Amazon rainforest tell you wonderful stories about how to survive if your aeroplane crashes in the middle of the forest and you can't be picked up for two weeks. Um, He's also the science director of the Eden Project. So you're talking about a pretty important uh, kind of guy. Um, Now, he would say that one of the things that has been most harmful to him in his trying to witness as a scientist is the kind of attitude of some Christians who try to deny the scientific discoveries which the vast majority of science uh, would accept. So that's, that's from uh, somebody who is a very much committed evangelical Christian, uh, much, much uh, better scientist than me. Okay, so what is, the Christi- what is the doctrine of creation? It is simply God is the creator of all things. If you, if you talk to uh, Richard Dawkins, he will say there's no God, it's a complete made-up thing. You know, science has proved that there is no God. That's rot. No such thing. Science cannot prove there is no God. Whether you believe, whether you look at the universe and say, wow, thank you, Lord, or whether you say, oh, what an incredible accident that was, uh, is a matter of faith based on what you see. The Christian doctrine is that God is the creator. And it doesn't matter whether I'm a top scientist or whether I am a a, a Christian in a mud hut in Africa. God is the creator. That is the doctrine of creation. Uh, And we know it because of his word, but we also know it because of what he's made. Second thing, God speaks and things happen. Now, there were other creation stories around in, in the time when the Bible was written, and they were quite elaborate. So there was one about um, the Babylonians had this. There were two gods. One was called Tiamat and one was called Marduk. And they were having an incredible battle in the heavens to see who was going to have control. And they kept fighting each other until one of them won to take control of the universe. <coughs> Exciting story. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke. He didn't have to fight with the other gods. He spoke and things came to be. That's a God who is powerful, who can create out of nothing, who can create all things. So God speaks and things happen. God brings order out of chaos. Don't we need that sometimes? When we look at the chaos in our society, the chaos in our world, we believe in a God who brings order out of chaos. In the beginning, the earth was void and without, without shape, without form. But by the time God had finished and said it's all very good, it was structured, there, there was order, uh, a life, uh, and... Uh, next one. God saw that it was good. He looked at the end, and then he said it was very good. But I would like you to note that it doesn't say in Genesis that it was perfect. 
That word is not used, but it is good. There were some things in creation that aren't good. Darkness is not good. Um, the unbounded sea is not good. So until the end of day two, uh, when, uh, day three, when the, the, the sea and the land have been separated, does, does not pronounce that creation is good. And then when we get to chapter two, it is not good for the man to be alone. There's something missing, isn't there? Uh, this need for relationships. So there are some things in creation that are not perfect, but it is all good. And now, this is the point I've really been getting to today, so you can forget all the rest. Um, no. God put human beings in charge. Right at the beginning of creation, in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, these creatures that God has created in his own image, he said, you are in charge. It all belongs to me, by the way. It's my creation, but I'm putting you in charge. So when we blame God for what's happening in the world, or when we deny, uh, as certain politicians do, that, uh, that we're damaging the planet, we, we've forgotten. God has put us in charge. And therefore we have responsibility to care for the planet. And I think this is the most important thing because many Christians have spent a lot of time arguing about the how. And I, you know, I know the people that get really upset and really up, and, and Christians fall out about you know, their views on creation. Now, I, I respect every one of you. If you have a different view from me, I completely respect that and you're still my friend. But don't tell me, I mean, like my uh, friend who sent me that letter told me I should leave ministry because I don't agree with him. Don't tell me that um, because, uh, you know, I don't say these things without having thought it through and studied. Um, But actually, the most important thing is not to argue about how, but actually to worship God, and that's the last bit, and care for his creation. So if we are to worship God, we are worshipping the creator, we must take care of his creation. It's it's no good actually, um, you know, singing all these wonderful hymns about God, praise to my soul, you know, the king of creation, and then trashing his world. What what is that, you know? If I, you know, borrow my friend's car, uh, because it's a nice fast car, and, and I think, oh, I've got a great friend, he's a really good guy, he lent me his Tesla or whatever it is, and I go and smash it up, uh, is that worship? It isn't, is it? So at the heart of all that we do, uh, we are people who worship God. That's the doctrine of creation. God is the creator. God speaks and things happen. He brings order out of chaos, thank God. God saw that it was good. He loves it. He puts us in charge. And our response is to worship him, but also to care for all that he's made.